0: In this episode of Fintech Flow, we explore how startups can take their B2B business abroad. We analyze the best strategy and discuss when, where, and with whom to go global. My partner in crime is Vardavá Shmánai, who has decades of experience helping startups develop their business abroad. He invests in early-stage startups as a partner at SmartwareTech, supports the international expansion of scale-up companies as business developer at EIT Digital, and acts as an advisor to corporate innovation programs. Welcome to FinTech Flow, where we deep dive into the depth and complexity of successful startups, sit down with bright FinTech minds, and bridge together the gap in mindset between the legacy players and today's innovators. With 10 years' experience as a manager in the financial sector, MIT-certified FinTech expert Linda Charley is prepared to put it all in play and to follow the flow. welcome to the show.
1: Great to be here. Thank you.
0: Let's start with the one question. Which indicators should we look for before we take our B2B business abroad?
1: So I believe it's uh, good to wait until the company is at the right stage. So very early stage startups are probably not in the best position uh, to expand internationally. If you follow what uh, Dave McClure, who is the founder of 500 Startups, one of the the top uh, international startup accelerator programs uses by way of categories he distinguishes between pre-seed seed seed and series a stages and probably uh, when you're still figuring out what your product market fit should be whether you have it how to get it is not yet the right stage to expand internationally that would be sort of the the pre-seed stage in the maclurian categorization then comes the point when you already are at the seed stage you you know that you have a a working product that some people use, maybe even several people use, but you still have to figure out what business model is probably the best for for your product. It's still probably too early stage. When you get to the Series A stage, when the question is whether you can make real money and you already know for sure that people like and use your product, that's probably the time you have already figured out the product market fit to go and expand internationally. There are many reasons for this. One being that before you have the product market fit, you probably don't know what exactly you're selling. And it's like throwing big logs on a fire that's not yet kindled. And it can actually um, extinguish, smother your fire. And also you probably should be focusing on getting the product market fit and not yet on the scaling phase. So I think it's useful to distinguish between the phase where you're figuring out the product market fit Um, so that's sort of you're focusing on your product and on getting some early traction and then the distribution phase when you already have the product market fit and you're figuring out how to scale it up and how to sell it more widely
0: is there any new challenges we should expect to face at this stage
1: absolutely there's a book that's been recently published by uh, Elad Gil uh, the high growth handbook and he argues that basically at the beginning there are three challenges for a a startup figuring out what the product market fit is we've just discussed that not to fight with your co-founders so so make sure that you you're staying together and then not to run out of money so you have to get some fundraising going so that's basically the three challenges uh, he argues and you shouldn't be focusing on anything else when it comes to the scale up stage and you're already thinking about having the product market thinking about how to sell your product more widely then there's a horde of new challenges, starting with uh, hiring executives uh, that can take some of your jobs and your, by your, I mean the founder's job, away from you. Maybe thinking about having more than one product, uh, thinking about having a structure uh, within your organization that helps the scaling process and international development. Uh, These are very new and very different sorts of challenges. There are actually founders who are very good for the early stages, and not so good for these later stages. So it happens sometimes that the um, investors who come at the Series A stage uh, uh, replace the founders uh, in the CEO position, maybe also the CTO position. And usually the reason is that the job is just very different.
0: Is that easy to digest as a founder CEO? Never,
1: especially if they get rid of you, it's never easy. But but we know that it happens. And actually the, the most famous startup success stories of history are not good examples for this. So the Facebooks and Googles that still run by their founders. But I think uh, this is far from general in this world. So it happens much more often than when it comes to a stage, series A, series B stage, uh, then founders are replaced in the, the CXO positions, or at least partly replaced, some of them are replaced.
0: Okay, so we know when and we know the new challenges we are going to face. Let's let's go to the where when it comes to international business development. How can we select the continent and the country we should expand to where we could succeed?
1: Yeah, so I think uh, rule number one is that that you should be going where your market is. And uh, so in the case of fintechs, that is usually a few of the hubs in the world where the financial industry is uh, anchored. So, for instance, within Germany, Uh, Berlin is the most uh, attractive and most famous startup hub Uh, but many of the fintech companies actually go to the Frankfurt area because that's where the center of the financial industry is. Of course, London is another one. Uh, Within the US, uh, we all know that the Silicon Valley is number one but still many of the fintechs go to New York because from the financial industry's point of view that's at least as important as uh, uh, the Silicon Valley. Uh, So, especially if you do B2B, you have to go where your market is, where your your potential buyers, customers, specialized uh, um, uh, investors are. Usually, though not always, it makes sense to start in your own uh, home market and get this previously mentioned product market fit there and then go gradually abroad. This is not always the case, but very often it is. Sometimes the kind of product you're developing already uh, requires that you're present at multiple places. A good example is, of course, TransferWise, which is about sort of different accounts being used at the same time. So uh, just uh, uh, starting up with the original idea. Uh, it started in Estonia and I think London, uh, the UK, at the same time. Uh, because it's that kind of a business. Of course, if if the the nature of the business dictates it, then you have to start. uh, Either you might start at different places at the same time, or even you might have a strategy to roll out in multiple countries right away. But I think it's much rarer than uh, the kind of business that you can start small. And it's a good idea in general for any startup project to minimize the surface area at first uh, where you get this product market fit and then you build out uh, from there. And since most people are familiar primarily with their own home markets, it makes sense to start there. And once you are ready uh, and, and you have proven your business model, you have proven the product, then you can move on to the next stage. And again, then uh, the the markets where your potential customers are pro- are probably the, the best places to start.
0: It absolutely makes sense to start at our home market and also if you go abroad, go where hubs are, but how should we decide if it's the Silicon Valley, if it's London, or maybe we should go to Asia?
1: There are usually many, many factors. In the case of FinTech companies, you are asking about Asia because very often Asia is the best uh, potential market. One factor is the regulatory environment. So if sometimes uh, in the case of, of certain markets, uh, regulation is more friendly in some places of the world. Uh, for instance, the US. in the US you get many complaints about drone companies having a harder time there than in some other parts of the world. In the case of fintechs, often developing countries or Asian countries are more welcoming, partly because there isn't a big legacy system in the regulatory uh, dimension that West European companies or even US companies have to cope with. Also, the mindset of people might be different. Uh, Sometimes it happens that some parts of the world can leapfrog other parts of the world in uh, terms of technological innovation. For instance, the whole PC revolution did not happen in Africa, but the smartphone revolution happened faster than anywhere else in the world. So if you are developing a, a kind of technology or a kind of product, that can leapfrog maybe um, you can find the best opportunities not in the most advanced part of the world uh, but elsewhere and China is a very good example in fintech in the past few years because both the regulatory environment of course with some question marks but uh, in general there there are many uh, sort of advantageous features of it and people's mindsets have been very open Uh, they, uh, they were very experimental and very open to uh, uh, trying new technologies. Uh, that's I think part of the key of why uh, finTech uh, has been so successful in China in the past years.
0: Is it also possible that maybe the competition is not that hard in China or not that strong in China?
1: Yeah, that, that's also possible although in terms of fintechs it's probably by now it's as probably advanced probably. as anywhere else. Yes. and even the larger players like and technologies, Uh, is really the most advanced and one of the strongest players internationally. Globally, really one of the best and strongest players in the world.
0: That's true. true. Okay, so now we are abroad, we know where to go to. How much personal presence is needed once we set foot abroad?
1: So if it's uh, B2B or B2B2C, I think personal presence uh, typically is important because there are cultural differences between different markets and also you need to have local knowledge. You need to know if you're selling to corporates, to businesses, which corporates to sell to or try to sell to, whom within those corporates you have to talk to and in what way. Uh, what are the, the cultural norms? Uh, what are the expectations of people? So that's, that's always a huge issue when you expand internationally to figure out what sort of uh, structural changes you have to make in your company, uh, especially if it's a startup company, and to what extent you need uh, boots uh, on the ground uh, to have local people in your team or at least very strong partners for international business development. One of these affiliations that you mentioned for me is the IT Digital, so that's what we are actually doing. We're, uh, we have uh, uh, close to 40 people Uh, all around Europe, who are business developers uh, with uh, great knowledge of their own uh, ecosystems, fundraising opportunities, as well as uh, business lead generation opportunities. And they help scale-up level companies uh, to expand into their market. So we're looking for scale-ups that are already successful in one European market, in one national market, for instance in Hungary. And uh, we have, through this network of 40 uh, professionals, Uh, to get to other uh, uh, European countries. And these people uh, do have this local knowledge, they have their networks in in the particular countries, and uh, our our scale-up partners can leverage on that.
0: It should be quite useful, because it would be difficult to find the right people and companies to talk to at a quite different culture.
1: Hopefully, so hopefully that's the value that we can create for our partner companies.
0: Yeah, and do we need any kind of business organization also abroad or what should be the form to be there?
1: Yeah, so, so our experience is that it, it needs uh, strategic thinking, it usually needs some adjustment in the uh, structure of the company, and it definitely needs uh, people who can devote a significant chunk of their time for that particular market. So it doesn't really work that a startup founder decides that she or he wants to uh, conquer a a foreign market and cannot devote the time uh, and the uh, uh, resources to do it. So usually when we partner with a company, with a scale-up company, uh, that's one of the things that we really double-check at the beginning, whether these sort of resources are are committed. Uh, Because if they are not, then success is very unlikely to come especially in, in B2B businesses, so when you're selling to corporates or, or businesses, because it's a very uh, uh, people-intensive uh, activity and it's usually expected by your potential partners that you're there for the negotiations, you're there when they need you.
0: Right. So it's an important thought again that if, if you think and if you want to go, you also need to have the resources for that.
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely. And sometimes companies hire international business developers in the particular countries where they would expand into, uh, or salespeople, that, that strategy often works. And sometimes they hire uh, uh, partners like IT Digital and uh, you basically move in parallel in different countries uh, and you have people who work not only for you, for other companies as well, but you have 40 of them, none of them full-time. Yeah.
0: I see. Another interesting question for me is we are a startup abroad in a different culture in a different country. Why is a startup important for big corporates and how should we sell ourselves, how should we sell our startup company to make them understand that they need us?
1: Yeah, so uh, corporates tend to be amazing in what they are doing Uh, and that usually is a very specific thing, but what they are really good at is efficiency and effectiveness in exploiting the market opportunities that they have been set on because they are so good at it they can usually be blindsided by new innovations that doesn't really fit in their corporate strategy and that doesn't look big enough in their eyes so because they are so good in understanding their customers in making their processes efficient and effective uh, they are unlikely to change and try to exploit opportunities that look very small at any time. Startups are much better in running with the smaller opportunities, uh, developing sort of pinpoint solutions for very specific problems that look small at the beginning, but then when the startups turn out to be successful, become much larger later on. There's a very famous book by Clayton Christensen about the innovator's dilemma, which uh, basically covers this topic of why uh, disruptive innovation usually comes from smaller players and not uh, corporates. And that's basically the argument, the, the spine of the argument that I just uh, uh, said a, a moment ago. Uh, so it's really advisable for uh, corporates to look for this startups and other innovative actors basically globally for knowing what exactly the market is developing into how it's changing and that is a piece of knowledge that cannot usually be gained from introspection in a corporation or even in a particular established market so that is sometimes referred to as open innovation you're looking around and trying to get an understanding of what the the best startups and scale-ups, the ones that are growing the fastest or the ones that are are successful in raising the highest funds, venture funds, uh, are doing and how these kind of innovations are impacting or may be impacting your business in the medium or long run as well and maybe already in the short run. So I think it's a luxury that uh, corporates cannot afford that they live in an ivory tower and they don't care about uh, these other innovation efforts. There are many ways of engaging with these external sources of innovations. You can do partnerships with them, you can try to acquire some of them, uh, many corporations have been really successful in that. Uh, you can co-opt them, you can, you can try to have internal innovation projects basically repeating what these external actors are doing. And there's no single recipe that works all the time. But you have to be open and you have to understand what they are doing. Uh, and that requires a strategic focus on this. So in the case of financial players, by now, by 2019, basically all of them are, are really absolutely aware of the potential risk that on the one hand, fintech companies and the other uh, on the other hand, larger tech companies mean to the financial sector, and by larger tech companies, I mean the Amazons and the Googles and the Facebook and so on, there are very few uh, uh, financial players who think that this is an absolutely no problem and it will never be a problem. It's a more difficult question what exactly to do about it, uh, and then we can, of course, discuss that.
0: Yeah, it's difficult, but before we discuss that, I would like to stick here because uh, if I'm thinking about uh, with the startup CEO's mind. It's, it's quite difficult because you mentioned yourself that for big corporates they are good at doing effectively what they are doing and uh, for them markets segments where fintech companies or other startup companies are trying to work is very small markets so that's one thing the other thing is right now in terms of fintech the noise is quite loud there are so many fintech companies so if I'm one single fintech company, I still find it very hard to convince someone a big corporate that I'm the fintech you should be talking to and this topic is quite small for you but this is an important or this will be important in the future. Could you give us some tips around this?
1: Yeah, so that, that I agree that it, this is really, really difficult and probably it's more of an art than a science. and. Uh, more corporates will get it wrong than corporates will get it right there will be always more failures in this than successes Uh, but there are cases of uh, corporates that have renewed themselves uh, multiple times like IBM being a great example or HP uh, that could figure this out and there are other famous examples like Blockbuster versus Netflix and so on that that could not figure this out I think you you have to have a, a sort of a a strategic genius uh, uh, at the helm of of the corporates to be successful in this and luck always comes handy Uh, but if you're not even watching and you're not aware of your wider environment in terms of innovation then you have absolutely no chance that, that you can Uh, manage this this process so uh, unfortunately i cannot give you like a tip or a recipe that 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 works but i I think
0: being a genius and have a lot of luck okay maybe maybe that we'll try that.
1: (laughs) yeah exactly
0: yeah i think it's hard from the startup point of view but let's look at the other side of the story because in my dreams also managers at big corporates are listening to this podcast so if you would like to give some advice to them how should they embrace fintech companies and other innovators from outside
1: yeah so so usually there's um, often a mismatch between the expectations of startups startups on one side and corporates on the other side when they are trying to work together and uh, one Area of the mismatch is a difference in speed. Uh, the startups maybe want to move faster and corporates slower. Another one is that sometimes corporates just want to have business intelligence. I, I emphasized a moment ago how important it is to be aware of everything. Uh, but if if it's if it becomes clear in the eyes of the startups and the scale-ups that when corporates are talking about partnerships, they really don't mean it. It's just more that they want to know about what that particular startup or scale-up is doing, then usually the uh, potentials of cooperation uh, fall apart. I'm working right now with uh, one of the banks in Hungary that runs a startup program, which I think has done a a pretty amazing job in in, uh, managing these kind of risks. And one of the main ways of of managing this risk in, in this particular case was that The different business units of the bank were very deeply involved in already the conceptualization of the uh, startup program of of this uh, financial player and the different challenges that were announced in uh, the framework of the startup program really came from the business units and this engagement has been very meticulously maintained throughout the whole program. I mean it's still uh, running but uh, in in, in the course of the selection of the startups and then the engagement of the startups then the courtship that always happens like we have to sell ourselves both sides uh, has been taken very all of these have been taken very seriously by the bank. Uh, So what is a a typical mistake I see is that there is an innovation department within a bank or a corporate that is very isolated from the rest of the, the company and they are open to doing anything with startups or scale-ups but they don't have the real support on the side of the bank or the corporate you have to have a buy-in from the different business units and the wider and the deeper this buy-in the more likely that you will succeed so sort of isolated innovation departments or units do not work that would be something that uh, it's a very specific tip i can give
0: i think it's specific enough thanks for that what about global big corporates? Because we live in Hungary and we talk about FinTech. Most of the banks, insurance companies in this country are subsidiaries. Can we go to subsidiaries with our innovation? Do they have any work? Can they deal with it themselves or is it always driven by the mother company?
1: Yeah, that, that's, that's a great question. And, and unfortunately, the answer is that it's more often the latter than uh, the former. Uh, and when the local companies cannot make decisions, then these sort of partnerships tend not to work very well. Uh, this said, there it, it always happens that very agile leaders in the subsidiaries are in a position to do what they want. And they they have the processes to, to get the uh, agreement from the um, headquarters elsewhere. So I've seen good examples in Hungary of companies uh, are subsidiaries of uh, foreign companies to do pretty well in terms of engaging uh, open innovation actors so startups for instance from uh, outside outside of the company but that always it really hinges on uh, whether the right kind of leaders uh, lead those companies and the right kind means that they have the right uh, strategic objectives and also they are in the kind of relationship with their bosses in the uh, mother company that that they can push their will through uh, in a sort of orderly and quick manner.
0: Having said that, it makes a little bit uh, difficult for a Hungarian fintech startup to have the first experience locally.
1: Uh, Probably, except that uh, some of the so there's always a threshold uh, below which uh, local people can decide. Mm-hmm. So if you're, you, we're coming back to a point that we made earlier that uh, you, it's usually a good idea to go gradually. You do something first in your home market and then you move on and expand and, and conquer other markets. So when we're thinking about, for instance, the figuring out the product market fit phase, then um, usually the pilots are either unpaid or they are uh, in the order of maybe 10, 20, 30,000 euros. Uh, That kind of budget all the local decision makers have as well. So you can do uh, really great stuff with them. You can learn a lot about your product or product idea at the beginning. You can learn a lot about your customers or would-be customers. So that's, I think it's a great uh, possibility. And on the, on the sort of the flip side, if you're making a good partnership with the local branch of an, an international bank, for instance, then the distribution, the next step will be obvious. If it works out well here of Bank X's local subsidiary, then maybe Bank X's subsidiaries elsewhere will take that over. For instance, not from the banking sector, but I've also worked with, uh, one of the large taco companies in Hungary. And it happens in this taco company, which has, uh, it's a subsidiary of a, a non-Hungarian taco company that really fairly big projects are piloted in, in Hungary. And when they work out, then they go to the other subsidiaries in many other countries. And that's a really great springing board. And you can do an amazing lot in terms of validation, business validation, technological validation, business model validation, and so on here in Hungary. Uh, I've seen cases both of internal innovation and sort of external open innovation kind of projects.
0: Great. So there is hope. And don't forget that if you're a fintech company, you can not only cooperate with financial institutions, but uh, other markets
1: as well. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so sometimes fintechs are differentiated, enabling and disruptive fintech companies. And there are more and more cases when I think that company is disruptive in the financial sector, for instance, in the banking sector. But it's at the same time enabling in another sector, for instance, if it sells a payment solution to telecommunications companies, then it's a disruptor in the um, sort of the banking industry, but it's an enabler in the telco industry. And and yeah, and you can sort of play around with this these dynamics.
0: Okay, so we should we should look around, uh, walk with open eyes. Thank you very much. I'm trying to wrap this up. So we need to be around Series A stage in terms of when. We need to be prepared for the new challenges and have enough resource if we want to succeed abroad. It's difficult how to find the where, but let's start local and then try and go to somewhere where it's a financial hub. And also important to keep an eye on the regulation and regulatory environment. Uh, and try and find some company or someone who can help with the local knowledge to be able to find the right people and right companies to talk to. Is That's it, is awesome. it uh, something like this? Yeah, exactly. Thanks a okay. lot. Okay, thank you very much, Barnabas. Please tell me where can people find out more
1: about you. The smartware Tech has a website, uh, Smartware with W A R E dot T E C H or E I T Digital which is uh, short for European Institute of Technology.
0: Uh, Super great. Thanks uh, very much. I will put all this in the show notes and also the books that you refer to. Thanks for being with us.
1: Thank you. Thanks a lot for talking to me.
0: I really enjoyed this talk. I hope you did as well. Thanks for listening. Next week, we continue our topic about international scaling, but that time we look at it from B2C point of view. I'm really excited about that one, as I will talk to two old friends of mine the founders of Broker Chooser, which is a Hungarian fintech company providing a leading comparison website with a special focus on financial brokers. Here's a little teaser of the next
1: episode. The startup business is relatively simple. There's high chance uh, that you're not going to succeed, As there's a very low chance you're going to succeed. And if you cap your low chance win, your expected return is going to be really, really low. So, because of that, it only makes sense if you dream big.
0: Stay tuned until Wednesday, and if you'd like to, tell me who, which company, or what topic you would like to hear about on FintechFlow.